In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last summer, our family was about to go on one of our regular trips to visit both sets of parents in Ohio. But the van was making us sound. It didn't seem too serious, no clunking or grinding, but over time it just seemed like the tires were making more and more humming as we drove. Now, since it wasn't my primary car, I hadn't paid much attention to it, much to the chagrin of my wife. But since we were about to drive across several state lines, I took it into our mechanic for a quick look. He was busy, but he found a window in his schedule to fit me in. Well, after taking a look at my wheels, Brian, over at Brown and Klein in Whedon, whom I can't recommend more highly, told me that the front bearings were so bad that he couldn't in good conscience let me go on this trip without fixing it, lest we break down somewhere on the Indiana toll road. Car mechanics are like prophets. They often tell us information we don't want to hear, warning us of impending doom if we don't change our ways, and when we don't heed their advice, we find ourselves literally and figuratively on a road headed for disaster. We heard from the prophet Isaiah this morning. Isaiah chapter 2 is sort of a good news, bad news chapter, but we only read the bad news. The first five verses are the good news, that people will come to the mountain of the Lord, learn his ways. Swords would be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Violence and war were going to be no more. It is a hopeful vision of the day of the Lord. But then comes the bad news. The house of Jacob had not been righteous. They had made themselves proud, ignoring God. And Isaiah speaks of their impending disaster. The verse just before our reading this morning, verse 9, reads, And so people are humbled and everyone is brought low. Do not forgive them. Verses 11 through 18, which we did read, are a list of the things that would be brought down on the day of the Lord. Cedars and oaks and mountains, high towers and fortified walls, the ships of Tarshish, etc. The natural elements listed, oaks and cedars and mountains, function as images of the pride of the people of Judah. The good news of the day of the Lord, where everyone would come to Zion and worship and hear from Yahweh, comes with the destruction of those things that had falsely taken his place. One chapter prior, Isaiah had already listed the kinds of sin that had become commonplace. There was justice, but now murderers, princes becoming rebels. Everyone loves a bribe. They did not defend the orphan and the widow. In short, they had forsaken God. And the litany of unrighteousness in the first chapter of Isaiah was what happened as a result. When we fail to exalt God and allow other things to take that place of prominence, disaster comes. Twice in our reading this morning, Isaiah says that the Lord alone will be exalted. I think it's important to recognize that temptation to abandon God doesn't come swiftly all at once. Like the gradual decay of my van's front bearings, sin takes root slowly. It is this understanding of how temptation works that helps make sense of Jesus' seemingly anti-family words in Matthew. It's uncomfortable for us this morning to hear the good news of the Lord Jesus according to St. Matthew and then hear right afterwards, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and her daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Now this uncomfortable passage isn't unique to Jesus. He's quoting from the prophet Micah. 
Micah was speaking about what Judah would be like once they had totally abandoned God. This was a part of a longer, a longer chapter in which all these details of the horribleness of Judah were coming into place. And one of the examples is this family eating up its own family. So why does Jesus say that he is the one bringing it here? He's pointing out the reality that to follow him, to be his disciple, would result in this kind of opposition. The kinds of divisions that Jesus says he has brought to the world are not the goal of his mission. They're simply what happens when the good news of the kingdom of God comes in conflict with the powers and principalities of this world. Jesus is Lord means that Caesar and every other would-be king is not. And while the opposition could come from powerful strangers, it could also come from close loved ones. Jesus himself experienced this kind of division when his own family rejected him. Now, the point here isn't to develop a low-level hatred for your family. It's to be wary that we do not love our family more than we love God. One commentator wrote that devotion to family is essential to the life of the Christian. In fact, Paul commends this in a number of ways in his letters, but not if it compromises devotion to God. The way you find yourself in the mess that Isaiah describes is to allow other things, even good things, to crowd out and take over our love of God. I don't think it's an accident that when Jesus summarizes the law, that loving God comes before loving our neighbor. If our love of neighbor is not animated by our love of God, if our love of neighbor doesn't flow from our love of God and his love for our neighbor, it can easily end up being twisted into only loving the neighbors who are like us, and then contract to only really loving family and friends. Jesus had already said in the Sermon on the Mount that anyone can love their friends. Citizens of the kingdom of God would love and pray for their enemies as well. So how do we avoid this? Jesus tells us how. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It's only in dying to self that we find we can truly live. Paul tells the church in Rome to reflect on the death of the old self. Now, Paul is writing to already baptized Christians, so he's not promising an effortless process in the factory of sanctification where we sit back on the conveyor belt of grace and let God do what he does. Paul is exhorting them to live into the reality of their baptism, that the sin that continues to plague them has been defeated and put to death with Christ, so they ought to consider themselves dead to sin. We have a tendency to intellectualize faith and make it a series of propositions that we say yes to, and so we read Paul as if he's doing the same thing. But to consider something to be true, we must act as if it were true. You can say and maybe even think that you love your neighbor and even your enemies and still actively or passively hurt them. But this isn't an option for us. James will call this kind of faith, that without works, dead. Verse 11, where Paul tells the Romans to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, this is a further answer to his opening questions of the chapter. Should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? His initial response is, by no means. And then he goes on to explain, living in sin is a rejection of the truth that we proclaim about our salvation. So this consideration is an ongoing process. I have many reasons to love the Anglican way of following Jesus, but chief among them are the structures that give my rebellious heart constant and regular calls 
to pursue and receive God's grace. From the daily offices to the church calendar, to regular reading of the Psalms, to the Eucharist, to creeds, to confession and absolution, we recognize that our worship is not just meant to gather saints, but to form and transform us more and more into the likeness of the one into whose death and resurrection we have been baptized. The point here is that in Christ we have died to sin once and for all, but we still need to die to ourselves daily, maybe even hourly. This is why Paul will later write that the Romans ought to offer themselves up as living sacrifices, continually giving themselves up to God. The transformation of our lives and our wills is by God's grace alone, but it takes place in our continual submission to him. The regular, habitual choice to keep him as Lord and not allow other things to crowd out our devotion to him. Back to Jesus, always a good move. In the second half of our gospel reading, after pointing out the divisions that will be caused by his ministry, Jesus speaks about the prophets. He lists, he lists three types of people, and the progression shows that we ought to receive any of them, whether it's a prophet, a righteous person, or a little one, probably not in reference to a child here, but the least of the disciples. And his point is that we need to be open to hearing. The prophet's words may sting and repentance may be difficult, but the only way that those challenging words move from bad news into good news is if we are willing to let them do their work in our hearts. If there were no room for improvement, the way of the cross would be unnecessary. But thanks be to God, he isn't done with any of us. There's always work that God wants to do with us and more importantly in us, and if we are willing to receive from him, he can do it. If we are willing to hear about the things we have let crowd out God's place in our hearts and in our minds. I haven't used the word yet, but what I'm talking about this morning is idolatry. We often think that we perfectly obey the second commandment because we don't have any sacred objects that we venerate or demand allegiance to. But idolatry isn't a matter of theology, of right thinking, of ideas. It's a matter of worship. You don't have to believe something is an idol in order for it to be an idol. All that needs to happen is for you to treat it like an idol, like the thing that provides meaning, like the thing that can save you. When the Israelites made a golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai, it became idolatry when Aaron looked at it and said, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, I don't know what idols you have set up in your life, maybe it's your job, financial security, politics, country, comfort, health. Jesus says it can even be your family. You might not even know that it's functioning as an idol. But the absence of conflict is not the same as peace. And you may think that your engine is running fine while bad bearings are threatening to leave you stranded in the middle of Indiana, metaphorically speaking. You might not be comfortable with me comparing Indiana this way, but I'm sorry, that's just how the metaphor works. Hearing about your own sin, about your own idolatry, feels like bad news, and it can be hard. But as Patrick Egan pointed out for us last week, having a hermeneutic of generosity, being willing to hear, being open to hear, can help us understand what needs to be fixed. And the diagnosis of the problem is the first part of hearing the really good news, that the restoration God promises us, if we repent and take up our cross, is better than continuing in our sin. 
that the day of the Lord may cut down all those things that have crowded him out, but in their place comes righteousness and the goodness of God. That when we are willing to receive prophets to speak the gospel into our lives, even when that good news is hard news, we will not lose our reward. That when we lose our lives, it turns out that we find them. That when the old self is put to death, we actually find new and better life in Christ. I pray that we have the humility to do just that. Amen.